You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we get into uh, this passage here, let me tell a a little story to illustrate this. There was a best-selling book published a few years ago titled Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And it's a fictional story based on England's revival of magic in the 19th century. And the story goes that magic had all but vanished in the land. It was still a part of England's history, but it was more of a legend than a reality. No one had actually seen or experienced magic for years and generations. But like most traditions, there were still these so-called practitioners 
men that called themselves magicians, even though for them and for everyone else, it was completely theoretical. The author, Susanna Clark, writes this. Not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or change a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this one little minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation of some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. These so-called magicians studied magic in books. They would meet often to argue the history and application of magic. They would write these lengthy articles about magic, but there was just this one little problem. No one had actually personally seen the slightest evidence of magic. Until two uh, characters break open the theoretical, their names, Gilbert Norrell and Jonathan Strange, who actually practiced real-life magic. Mr. Norrell, his first sort of public display of magic was to make the stone statues at the Yorkshire Cathedral to come alive and for the church to quite literally begin to sing. And everyone is amazed because the legend finally came to life. Now, there's something sort of haunting and, dare I say, mildly prophetic about this story. A a people that has settled for the legend of magic for something that has been reduced down to theory, for something that's been reduced down to simply discussion and argument, but really at the end of the day lacks the real thing. If we're to be honest this morning, and you're at church, so I hope you are, this describes Christianity for many of us at many times. For many, there's this sort of disenchanted, disillusioned feel where we have very little expectation to see and to experience the power of God at work in our lives and in our world. For others, there's a false sense of security that theoretical knowledge of God has given us, a knowledge that lacks any kind of real trust, any kind of real hope that God is actually near to us and actually moves in this world in our time. We read of revivals in the past. I've shared countless stories of revivals and how God has met men and women throughout history. Or maybe even for some of us, maybe for even for some of us, we've actually experienced revival. And yet, somewhere along the way, we lost the wonder. We, we lost that God-sized vision of possibility in this world. See, we've got to be honest that we live in a time, in a place where faith is lacking and where spiritual possibility has very little influence on the way that we are navigating our lives in our community. But the truth is, we're not alone. And Jesus, as we see here in Mark, is gracious and willing to step into our doubting and disenchanted lives and communities to awaken us once again to the possibility of life in the Spirit. In fact, this This is the sort of scene that we stumble upon in our next portion here in Mark chapter 9. Mark has told us previously that Jesus took a handful of disciples and went away with them. And as they went up on the mountaintop, he's transfigured before them. He he puts his full glory and character on full display. And yet when he returns to the crowds, him and his disciples are met with debating, they're met with doubt, and they're met with some serious dysfunction here. 
And it's this scene that we're now going to dig into this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the problem, the possibility, and ultimately the power. Let's look first at the problem. Now, there's clearly a problem at hand. And the problem that emerges from this passage is really summed up in this very heartbreaking testimony and statement that the man makes when Jesus returns to his disciples. Look with me in verses 17 through 18. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. I came to you for help, and they were not able. So here's the problem that is presented in this passage. There's an individual who's caught in the grips of evil, clearly caught in the grips of evil. The father brings him to Jesus' disciples, but they are incapable of helping, which shows us that the people of God can lack the power of God to affect any sort of real change in the face of evil. Now, as we look back on Mark, if we're paying attention, this is not from a lack of experience. Previously, we see in Mark that Jesus sends out his disciples with real authority to do this very thing. They're sent out with authority, and they've got the know-how, they have the experience, they even have the reputation that we seem seem to believe that they have the reputation that they can cast out demons because now people are bringing their children to them. And yet when it comes to this kind, and Jesus doesn't really explain what this kind is. Every generation has their own this kind. But when it comes to this kind, whatever this kind is, they lack the power to bring change. Which means that it's entirely possible for the people of God to be filled with the knowledge of God and even personal experience and yet completely lack spiritual power. We can show up week after week and say the right things and do the exactly right things and have our doctrine statement in order and have all the right formula together and carry out the motions just as we're supposed to and still lack spiritual power. Well, you may ask, how do we know when the church is lacking spiritual power? How will we know when that describes us? Well, Mark is giving us a huge hint. I hope you're paying attention. Look for excessive arguing. How do you know that the church is lacking any kind of real spiritual power? Look for excessive arguing. Excessive arguing is typically the stench of a decaying body. And the world can smell it a mile away. Look at me, verses 14 through 16. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them, first mention, And then again in verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Arguing and more arguing. And so this is interesting. The first statement that Jesus makes upon his return is a question about their arguing. This is what he's met with. This is the first thing he says when he meets them. So something for us to consider here, because we see a little bit of a Sort of on a micro level, the picture of Christ's return. He goes, he's glorified, and he returns for his church. And so something for us to consider this morning, when Jesus returns for his church, what will he discover? 
And Mark leads us to believe that it may be a bickering people lacking power. This is a pretty striking picture of the evangelical church today. I can't count how many times I have done a literal disconnect from social media because of the toxic interactions between those who claim to be Christians. When I've literally experienced physical repulsion based on the way that people are interacting with one another, wait for it, in the name of Jesus. And so I'll take, if if any of you follow me on social media, which you probably shouldn't because I'm lame at it, you will know I take these long hiatuses and every time without fail I return, it's like I peek around the corner to see the mud flinging fight that just continues. I'm like, no, I'm out. (laughs) Meanwhile, as one commentator put it, while we debate who is right and who is wrong and who is at fault, The world stands by helplessly in the grips of evil. One side may win a skirmish with others, but lose the battle with Satan. Who won the argument? It doesn't matter because the boy is still in the grips of evil. Catching that? What a small, insignificant battle to fight when there is someone literally foaming at the mouth and rolling on the ground. Well, let's be honest, that's us, isn't it? We, 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 we take to the inter- interwebs with our just fight. Meanwhile, the world around us is dying. This is the problem. Let's look secondly at the possibility. That was kind of a downer, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Possibility. Look at me, verse 19. And he answered them, Oh, faithless. Note that word, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So what we see here is really the heart of the issue. This is the heart of the issue. It's not ultimately a struggle with the demon as much as it's a struggle for faith. This is really what Jesus desires to address and to confront and grow in us today. It's not your demon slaying abilities. The big question is, where's your faith? In fact, at this moment, Jesus doesn't initially uh, dialogue with the evil spirit within the boy. He dialogues with the father. Look at me, verses 21 through 22. And Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So the inability of the disciples has now influenced the man's confidence in the ability of Jesus. That happens. I mean, this can happen to us. This happens all the time. People come to followers of Jesus for help, which should occur, by the way. The Bible tells us that we're the hands and feet of Jesus, the practical help of Christ's service to the world. People come to followers of Jesus seeking significant help But inevitably, somewhere down the line, breakdown occurs, disappointment occurs, hurts are inflicted, unfortunately. And at times, it's really hard to identify that fine line between disappointment in God's people and doubt in God himself. That that fine line between being let down by fallible people 
and by an infallible God. People will fail us. Jesus will never fail us. That's very important for us to hear. In fact, I love it. Jesus says, bring him to me. People are going to fail us. Jesus will never fail us. Look at me, verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So again, this is the real struggle going on here. The battleground of the human heart is a fight for faith. That is the fight. The true struggle is not against evil. The true struggle is not against sin. The true struggle is not against our flesh. Now, we are engaged in those battles. But the true struggle is to believe. And here's why I say that. Because this is where the Christian finds victory. In faith. Not in your ability to come against evil. Not in your ability to crucify the flesh. Not in your ability to to stop sinning. The true battleground of the human heart, and therefore the Christian heart, is a fight for faith. So here's the question. What does Jesus mean when he says all things are possible for the one who believes? Truth be told, this has been abused. Okay? So this doesn't mean that faith is a magic wand that we wave at things in order for them to go our way. I don't want to suffer. Right? I'm done paying bills. So-and-so is getting on my nerves. (laughs) Right? It's not just this magic wand that we wave at things in order for things to go our way. However, it means that faith refuses to set limits on what can be accomplished through the power of God. It refuses to say, to articulate or to believe any boundaries or any limits to God's love and capability in our lives and in the world. So it doesn't mean that we wield the power, but it does mean that through faith in Jesus Christ, we open up our lives to the power of God that is now released into the world through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which means that we open up ourselves and we open up our circumstances to the unending possibilities of God. That's what faith does. It tethers ourselves to heaven's goodness and heaven's might. Faith says, I can't but I'm betting on you can. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Now, what I love about this account is that while Jesus still requires faith, we're not off the hook on that one. Jesus requires faith, but He does not demand a perfect faith. And he is not explicitly mentioning any kind of command or demand for a certain amount of faith. In fact, if we're to be honest, this is literally the best any of us can offer God. (laughs) We live in a strange mix of belief and unbelief. For some of us, we're caught in the tension there in that sort of confusing mix of trust and doubt, confidence and apprehension. We often find ourselves stuck between the belief that God is real and he's good and he's capable and the doubt that he actually cares and the doubt that he's actually capable of affecting change in our world and our lives. I believe, help my unbelief. 
That sums up our Christian journey. That sums up our lives. That sums up me. And yet what I love about this is that Jesus receives it. This is the kind of faith that Jesus receives. How do we know this? Because the boy is healed. Because Jesus responds. Now, there's been a strange frequency of well-known, influential uh, people sort of going public in the news recently about their exit from the Christian faith. Uh, I remember reading last month about a well-known, influential pastor and author who, who announced via Instagram that, they're, that he and his wife are divorcing and he's leaving the Christian faith. He's done. Uh, just this last week, I read about a uh, famous worship leader who has written some of the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings, saying, I'm done with God and I'm done with the Christian faith. I'm just done. And I guess, I guess that's not new, but there seems to be like a strange frequency and, and publicity around this. So it, I've got a ton of questions. Um, and it makes me wonder, what was the progression like? Because I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and says, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my spouse, I'm leaving the Christian faith. Or wakes up one day and says, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this whole God thing. And so I begin, to, uh, I begin to ask those questions. What was that progression like? What was, what was that person's involvement in the local church? What kind of environment was fostered within the local church to, be, to begin to sort of speak toward those doubts when they were sort of in seed form? When preacher boy got up there and started preaching and then that sort of apprehension, like, I just don't know. What do I do with that? Just, I don't know. Or the, the whole, like, I believe that's true of God and I believe that's true of other people's life, but I'm just not sure I'm believing that's true of my life. What, what do we do with those things? Where? Listen to one author. Uh, Chuck DeGroote, he said, recent stories of people leaving Christian faith remind me that the church fails to host disorientation. Tensions, contradictions, and confusion need not lead to an exit door, but into the wrestling ring with God. Why? Because the dawn emerges, emerges after the dark night. So hear me, please. Your doubt, your unbelief, your fears, your apprehensions, your just, I don't know, is not an exit door, but is an invitation by God to enter the ring and wrestle, and to say some pretty bold things like Jacob as he wrestled, and he said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I don't know what tomorrow holds, and I may be done for, but I'm not letting go. This is my hope and prayer for our, our church community, that this would be a place that's honest about the tension of faith and doubt, that wrestle. And a place where prayers like this father are prayed and lived out. If something resonates in your heart when this father says, I believe, help my unbelief, you need to know that that's resonating in probably everyone else's heart as well. I believe, help my unbelief. And this father's honest about his, his faith struggle. Honest about it, he articulates it. And what we see is a faith that is expressed through doubt. You heard me right. What we see here in Mark 9 is a faith that is being expressed through doubt. In the realm of faith, there is a couple different kinds of doubt. There's unbelieving doubt, and then there's believing doubt. 
Unbelieving doubt is the kind of doubt that is cynical and at times prideful and even at times lazy. Because it doesn't raise questions in order to know, it raises questions to reinforce unbelief. It raises questions to prove what that person personally believes to be true or untrue. It's unwilling to wrestle. It's unwilling to seek. It's unwilling to hang in the tension. One of the interesting opportunities that's afforded to me working downtown is talking to a lot of interesting people. And so there's an individual that I, over the last year, have talked to for hours, sometimes hours every week, about faith and world religions and philosophy, which I'm totally faking it in the conversation. And I mean countless hours. So I gave this individual a book, actually Jeremy Treat's book. Before I gave it to him, I said, hey, would you, are you a reader? He said, absolutely, I read like crazy. I was like, would you read a book? He said, absolutely. I gave him the book. Very next day, he comes back to me with the book, and he says, I got your book. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you read the book. And he literally says, I can't do it. And I said to him, you can't or you won't? Hours and hours and hours of conversation about world religion and philosophy, and yet a refusal to seek, to explore, to wrestle. Unbelieving doubt, but secondly, there's a kind of believing doubt, a humble doubt that acknowledges our own weakness, a humble believing doubt that acknowledges that we are fickle and we are fragile. It leads us to continue to return to the source of light and life, and it leads us to acknowledge that we are not the source of light and life. We are not the source of all that is true. See, here's the paradox of faith, that when we acknowledge the weakness of our faith, that is the very moment that God reinforces and strengthens it. See, we're working on the paradigm of the world that to be strong, you got to be strong, the kingdom flips that, upside, that, that, that idea upside down and says, actually, to be strong, you got to be weak. To be a warrior of faith, you got to realize how weak your faith really is. And when we acknowledge, humbly acknowledge our need for God, it's when God reinforces it and he strengthens it. What we see here is believing doubt continues to open ourselves up to the possibility of God, even when things seem so impossible. I would venture to say that every single one of us has something in our lives that is just outside the realm of possibility. And faith leads us to open ourselves up to the possibility of God, not only in those moments, but even when things go from impossible to worse. Look with me in verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of those said, amen, he's dead. He's dead. Sometimes, like this boy, things in life go from bad to worse. You bring your circumstance, your chaotic circumstance, to God, and you're like, Lord, can you just bring some peace? Can you bring some order? And the thing starts to shake. You say, Lord, I got this thing in my life. It's very precious to me, and it feels like it's fading. It feels like it's dying. Lord, would you breathe life into it? And it begins to convulse and fall on the ground like a corpse. You're believing on the miracle and everyone else is around you saying, no, man, that thing is dead. That thing's done for. Faith is willing to acknowledge the facts. 
Faith faces the music. It does not bury our head in the sand to the reality of sin and brokenness and evil and despair. And yet faith leads us to the same conclusion time after time. But Jesus. Look at me in verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Will you do me a favor and turn to the person next to you and say, but Jesus? Those are two of the most important words that you will ever recite. Lord, things are going crazy in my life, but Jesus. This situation is done for, but Jesus. It's as good as dead, but Jesus. But Jesus, but Jesus. Spirit of God, at work through faith, leads the child of God to come to the conclusion time after time, but Jesus. Now the question we should be asking this morning is why? Why should we believe like this? And Mark gives us a not-so-subtle clue when he says that he was dead, and yet he lifted him up. That he went down in death, and he arose in life. Sound familiar? That's resurrection language. We can believe like this because this is the same Jesus that conquered the grave. We can believe God in our circumstances and in our lives and in our own hearts. Why? Because this is the same one that conquered Satan, sin, and death. What we see illustrated here is that the true deliverance that we require, deliverance from the power of evil, Deliverance from all of the devastating effects of sin that that seeks to destroy us and ultimately seeks to cast us into the fire has come to us us through another death and resurrection. See, Jesus sets his boy free through a process of the boy experiencing a sort of death and then being raised. But what we see all throughout the New Testament was that in order for Jesus to accomplish this on behalf of humanity, in order for Jesus to accomplish this on behalf of, of me and for you, it would actually have to come at the cost of his own life. The New Living Translation explains it like this. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He disarmed Satan. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. What the Apostle Paul is explaining here is that any claim, any claim that sin and evil had on us was released when we too were united with Jesus by faith. We were therefore joined with Christ in his death and therefore raised with him in his resurrection. 
which speaks a very good word over all, of our, all the circumstances of our lives. Which means when things are shaking, when things are convulsing, when things are foaming at the mouth, or even when things are lifeless on the ground, this same Jesus reaches out his hand to us today. He says, rise. Faith opens us to the endless possibility of God to say, but Jesus, but Jesus. Let's look finally at this final point, and I'll be brief. Let's look at the power. Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So the disciples are circling back to the big question, why? Why did they lack the spiritual power to affect change? What happened? And I would be asking this question too if I were one of the disciples. Why didn't it work like it did in the past? We knew exactly what to do. We knew exactly what to say. We did everything right. We had all of our ducks in a row. We did it in your name. We said we, were, we did it. Everything and yet nothing. Why? Verse 29, and he said to them, because this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, preached a sermon on this passage, so I'm just going to read part of that sermon. In effect, what Jesus is saying is this. You failed there, he said, in effect, to these disciples, because you did not have sufficient power. You were using the power that you have, and you were very confident in it. You did it with great assurance. You were masters of the occasion. You thought you were going to succeed at once, but you did not. You have not sufficient power. I did what you could not do because I have power because I'm filled with the power that God gives me by the Holy Spirit. If you, um, you will never be able to deal with this kind unless you have applied to God for the power which he alone can give you. You must become aware of your need, of your impotence, of your helplessness. You must realize that you are confronted by something that is too deep for your methods to get rid of or to deal with. And you need something that can go down beneath that evil power and shatter it. And there's only one thing that can do it. And that is the power of God. And he goes on to say this, and we too must become aware of that. We've got to feel it until we become desperate. Friends, we've got to feel that. We've got to feel that deep in our bones. That we lack the resources to affect change in our own lives, in our community, and in our city and in our world, that we are just completely lacking. Reality, what connects us to the kind of spiritual power that we see throughout the scriptures? Jesus just made it explicitly clear. There are no secrets here. There's no like hidden knowledge. Jesus says it only comes by prayer. It's not like the one, two, three steps method. It's not read another how-to book. It's not go to another conference. It's not have another meeting. Pray. 
Prayer opens us up to the power of God. It tethers us to heaven's possibility. Prayer is accessing by the Spirit all that Jesus has accomplished and secured for us. But as we see here and illustrated in Mark, we typically don't pray until we're desperate. Why is our prayer lacking? Probably because we're not very desperate for it. This desperate prayer is what separates the father who receives from Jesus and the disciples who walk away defeated. Why? Because the disciples lean on their own experience and they lean on their own wherewithal, but the father cries out, help. Do you see any eloquence in this father? Do you see anything that anyone is writing home about in this father? So maybe we don't need more prayer warriors. Maybe we need people humble enough to just simply say, help. Those who cry out. In fact, if you look at the little footnote here that corresponds with the the footnote at the bottom of your Bible, some manuscripts add with tears. He cried out with tears. I'm reminded of a story from the 1800s where the Salvation Army sent out uh, two workers to begin a new work in a new city. And they faced nothing but failure and defeat, and they were like, done. So they write back to headquarters in a telegram saying, this thing is not going to get off the ground. We're defeated. We're frustrated. Shut it down. And the founder of Salvation Army, William Booth, writes back in a telegram two words. Try tears. They took him up on his advice, and they witnessed a dramatic turnaround. Try tears. So rather than ask the more obvious pastoral question, like, reality, how's your prayer life? I want to ask a different question. How desperate are you? How desperate are you to see the power of God at work in your life and in our broken city? Have you yet seen your life in your city through tears? See, the spiritual world is funny like that. When you cry, it blurs your vision. If you're driving and you start to cry, you should probably pull over. But the opposite is true in the spiritual world. We see the world around us with exquisite clarity through tears. How desperate are you to see the people of God and to see the the people of our city and the people of our world transformed by the Spirit? And the reason I ask is that sometimes it takes coming to the end of ourselves to see that. So the question beneath the question is this, how willing are you to experience the process of becoming desperate? Failure and frustrations can actually be the gift of God that brings us to the place where we desperately call upon the Lord for his work in our lives and in our city and in our world. We're frustrated by failure. We hate failure. We want to jump ship at the first sight of failure. But then again, maybe we haven't failed enough. And on that note, Let's pray.